Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and today I'm pleased to be joined by Steve Cuss. Steve is the author of the book Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, and the host on the Managing Anxiety Podcast, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. Steve loves leaders and sees how much pressure they carry. His particular concern is to bring relief by equipping them with tools for individual and team health. He especially enjoys helping leaders break long-stuck patterns in themselves and their organizations. He has experience as a chaplain, as well as holding a Master of Divinity from Emmanuel Christian Seminary, where he focused on Hebrew scriptures and family systems, which we'll be talking about throughout our interview. Since 2005, Steve has served as lead pastor of Discovery Christian Church in Broomfield, Colorado. Steve is also from... Perth, Western Australia, in an adventurous family of origin. So uh, you'll definitely hear that when you listen to his interview. So thanks so much for joining the pod, and let's welcome Steve Cuss. Um, is there anything else you'd like our folks to know about you? No, that's plenty. That's more than enough. <laughs> Talk about your, your journey of faith, then, um, if you would. Yeah, yeah. Grew up in, in Perth. Uh, Australia is pretty famously a, a very secular country you know we've got a rough rough start the english sent us all over for you know basically <laughs> yeah. blue collar crimes so my my family got a head start with a mule thief and a prostitute um in fact we thought we thought he was a horse thief until a couple of years ago i learned that actually my ancestor was a mule thief and oh i've lost all respect for him now like really like <laughs> it wasn't worth it so he got sent to australia for seven years uh john warby and then his wife catherine uh, he met and married a prostitute that had 14 kids, and then several generations later, we came along. And, wow. you know, that, that's the classic story of most Aussies. We're, we're all, and we're all very proud of it. Uh, so, yeah, my family, um, great people. I, I, I'm very close to my family, but, yeah, they're not religious at all. In fact, they think mm -hmm. religion is pretty crazy or corrupt or, or weak. Uh, but for me and my sister, my sister who's older than me, uh, she started dragging me to church as a teenager. And mm -hmm. uh, it was amazing, you know, just the, the, the fundamental idea that, that the center of the universe is a loving heartbeat mm -hmm. and that, that the creator knows your name, uh, that was mind-blowing to me. So I was all in from about the age of 14. Um, and then, yeah, off we go from there. Awesome. What, is, uh, what would you say if, if there's anything that's grown or developed about your faith uh, today versus in your adolescence? Oh, gosh. I mean, I, it's hard to recognize my faith faith of my adolescence compared to today. Sure. I, I, I think the biggest shift for me was in my early 20s, actually quite connected to when I did CPE and seminary. And, and that was doubt, you know, like I, I think in my teens, it, both the church culture I was in and just being, just in human development, being a black and white kid, mm -hmm. I didn't think there was any room for doubt in faith. And I think very quickly in my 20s, discovering that doubt is actually a absolute gift of faith. And uh, to the point where I'm almost suspicious of people who've never had some kind of profound doubt 
disorientation. So that would be a big shift. That's interesting. I would often say the same thing about like someone who's never failed. Yeah. Like I don't know if I really want to trust someone who's never had some kind of quote unquote failure like professionally. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned we have a intern program. We get college kids. They come and live with us for a year at our church. They're great. Mm-hmm. But one of the entrance exams has to do with pain, failure, recovery. And it's int- you just you can know, you know, the kids that have seen some life and the kids that have still, especially, you know, if you're talking about especially a young white male leader, mm-hmm. you're talking about this is a kid that in youth group was affirmed for all the things that can get you into trouble as an adult. <laughs> <laughs> So they're they're often in shock when we point that out. Yeah. Well, one thing I didn't mention that I always think is fun. Steve and I are like, I guess, ecclesiological. I mean, we're like estranged siblings, I guess we might say. Yeah, I can't tell if we're supposed to be speaking to each other nowadays. I think it's okay now. But in the 60s, right, is when we weren't really supposed to be admitting each well, other existed. It depends who you ask, because I might get in trouble for speaking to you now among some people. So yeah. I'm ordained in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and Steve works in the Independent Christian Church, and we both come from, our traditions come from the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement, and uh, yeah, in some circles, we still don't get along, I guess, right? Yeah, you know, I, I have wonderfully kept out of those tussles, so I met, I studied them in school, and it was fascinating, because I didn't grow up church, so I didn't know my own heritage. Uh, and now, you know, I mean, our church, we partner we partner based on cause, not belief. So if there's mm-hmm. a problem we can all solve together, we jump in. Uh, so I don't spend a lot of time, but yeah, I believe, we, you know, our movements had a couple of issues, and I don't yeah. remember if you and I had a beef in the 1920s or 1960s, but it was one of those. Yeah, because I think, man, I'm, I'm rough here on my Stone Campbell history. Uh, I don't know if you can see over my right shoulder, our, our viewers, obviously, or our listeners, this is not a video podcast. I don't know if you can see right here, Steve, is the Stone Campbell Encyclopedia. Yep, yep, <laughs> I'm very familiar with it. Yeah, because you're, you're adopted in, right? You're not actually a true, you weren't born a Campbellite. I am not, an, I am not a native uh, uh, Campbellite, yeah, and that's that's been a, that's a, we could have a whole other conversation about that, too. Yeah. It's it's a fast. I, I actually, it's interesting. I love the movement. Uh, you know, no, every movement has big problems. I mm. love this movement. I, every stream of it. Also, the acapella, right? The non-instrumental crew. There's, yeah. There's actually some amazing stuff going on in that movement. So I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Yeah, it's interesting. I have uh, so again to not get too carried away into this conversation, but obviously I'm pastoring a a church in the Disciples of Christ tradition, and I have. Uh, part of my church, folks who've grown up in that acapella tradition, and then I have some folks who grew up in the independent uh, tradition. So it's really interesting how uh, kind of coalesced in some ways. But yeah. um, I had some a uh, couple of folks who I was trying to work with through. We have what's called a commissioning process for ministry in our tradition, and part of that requirement is they have to take a uh, a history and polity course. And uh, one of the things that was fascinating, one of my guys told me, is that. In the 60s, when the Christian Church Disciples Christ was in formation, trying to uh, organize, like, officially, it took eight years, eight years of meetings, and I just thought, holy cow, (laughs) family systems theory, there's got to be a case study there. Oh, for sure. No question. Well, uh, let's jump into that, because I know we could spend a good bit of time just talking fun about 
uh, Cohen Stone Campbell movement fun. Um, but Steve has done, uh, he has a book out called Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. That's been out for, what, a couple of years now? Yeah, I think about a year and a half, something like that. It came out in mid-2019. And he's he's more recently started, uh, what would you call it, a company, a coaching? Yeah, it's, I, I guess I'd call it an online community. So I've been teaching the MLA tools at my church for 10 years, and I just launched in January an online community to to the best of our ability to replicate online what we teach uh, in our church. Because we do small community, we, you know, we do slow and steady over a year or two. Uh, so that launched in January, and that's called Capable Life. Um, and I, I almost called it Managing Leadership Anxiety, but I, I've got some more books coming up. So I wanted it to be a broader umbrella, and I didn't want to be the only teacher. Like down the road, I'll have other people giving tools in Capable Life. So, yeah, that's that one. Yeah. I was thinking about this, Steve. Uh, as we come up, we're recording this early March, almost a year to the day of things really shutting down. When was your conference? Was that like, was that, do you, do you remember the dates of that? Yeah. You hosted it at your church? Right. I could go back and look. I just know that the second day of the conference was the day the country shut down. We We wrapped up the conference and our family went out to dinner. And we watched on the television the president, and then we watched the NBA, um, all shutting down. And so we were, we were literally half a day away from not being able to have a conference. It was pretty wild. Yeah, I just now that it, now that we're coming back around to that, I'm just reflecting on all that craziness and insanity. Um, well, let's talk about. Uh, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with this idea of family systems theory was about to talk about a little bit about the broader concept and then kind of how it relates to church and leadership. Yeah. So fam- the, the simplest idea of family systems theory is it studies the transmission and effect of anxiety. And uh, it, it has a, a very specific definition of anxiety. So, you know, for people who think anxiety is just worry and fear, mm-hmm. that would be one of many ways that we show up anxious. Sometimes anxiety looks like having to have the last word or, or sometimes it actually looks like being proactive. You know, when mm. we're talking about like these young white male leaders who get affirmed, that would be evidence that their anxiety is when they have to be in charge or, or when there was somebody in pain and they speak to the pain because they don't know how to be silent and present in someone's yeah. pain. So family system Siri studies how anxiety manifests inside us as an individual and then studies how we transmit it to each other, how we catch each other's anxiety. And then what happens when that goes on for a long time, how families then get into relational patterns that are destructive. And there's a handful of us over the years that have simply taken systems theory off the therapy couch and we put it into the organization. I am certainly not the first to do it, but that's what I do is I I take family systems theory and I turn it into you know any group of people who spend time together. And man, it's a ton of fun. Yeah, uh, is it is Friedman the first guy to kind of like per- first person to kind of put it into the church or religious congregational context? Edwin Friedman. I think so, and it's interesting because Friedman's book Failure of Nerve is probably his most famous. But uh-huh. the first book, I think this is probably the one you studied, Generation yeah. to Generation, would be the book where he really took it off the therapy couch and put it in the uh, the synagogue. Yeah, I'm blanking on um, who the who the folks were. I read, 
I remember reading Bill Richardson, I think it was, in seminary. And then I wonder if it was Ronald Richardson. Ronald Richardson. That might be it. That might yep. be it. Um, there's somebody else I'm blanking on. Stanky? Peter Stanky? Peter Stanky. Yep. yep. He's Great. The, those are the two folks I studied in seminary. But it's funny. It's interesting you mentioned anxiety because I remember even early on in, in my, I don't know, ordained ministry days, I guess, um, I kind of like would, I kind of understood um, this idea of a non-anxious presence, which is a key theme, forgive me for jumping ahead here, is a key theme in family system theory is like not having any anxiety. And I think one of the things that was most helpful for me, and that's one of the things your work kind of helped me grasp, is that it's not that I'm not anxious, it's that I'm aware of my anxiety and, and better managing it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, I I use that phrase in my book, non-anxious presence. I now regret it. I mm-hmm. I only now talk about calm presence. Yeah, and actually, it's why I named capable life. Like the first three letters, a capable C A P, for calm, aware, and present. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's right. Um, no, the, the technical term non-anxious presence doesn't mean you're never anxious. It means you are actually actively working to keep your anxiety from spilling over into someone else and keep their anxiety from causing you to want to disconnect with them. So like last week, I got a really heated, angry email from one of my constant critics. You know, every mm-hmm. everyone has a handful. Yeah. And he did what he does. He copied a bunch of people on the email and he made allegations that are just absurd. And my job, and it makes you anxious. There's, there's no escaping. Mm-hmm. That's going to make me anxious because I'm a human being. My job then as a so-called non-anxious leader is to stay connected to him rather than what I want to do is demonize him, write him off, cut him off. And the staying connected and, and managing my anxiety and not letting him bully me around. Because mm-hmm. he is a he's a bully who doesn't think he's a bully. It's just you know you've probably got these too, Lauren. But it's a weird dynamic. So my ability to have compassion and empathy for him, while protecting myself and staying connected to him, that's kind of the the calm presence. And it it's work. It takes work. Yeah, I was I was I've been really thinking about this kind of broader principle because Steve led you did a webinar or something on kind of managing your your critics. It's part of your capable life. Yep. And I I had a situation, uh, I don't want to get into it, but it was very, it was a very complicated, very mess. And I really thought about uh, this principle of like the folks who are, who are moving away from you, no amount of vulnerability or authenticity or honesty is going to help. And as you, as I think you said in the presentation, like often it's going to be weaponized against you. And that's exactly what I found. So it got to the point where I just would kind of, I responded very, like, very, I mean, I tried to be caring in my response and, yeah. and generous, but also, like, I didn't go into, you know, I wasn't, like, sharing my heart with them because I knew it just, it wasn't going to make a difference. Yeah. Uh, and I, that's been such a helpful kind of metaphor or image for me broadly is to think about who are the people that are moving towards me, those are the people I want to, I want to uh, move towards them and, and engage deeper with them and the folks who are moving away from me you know be kind be loving but just it's not worth chasing after them because chasing after them is at least for me isn't it as a example of my own anxiety of wanting to bridge that gap it's it's a really key point you're making i think lauren because 
Because, yeah, there are two extra dynamics in managing anxiety, and you just name one of them, is, well, what am I doing to mm -hmm. perpetuate this problem? So chasing after them. You know, the metaphor I use with critics is, don't feed the wildlife. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're warned not to feed the wildlife because they'll, they'll become dangerous. And so it's so often in our effort to make peace with people who don't want to be at peace with us, yeah. we're just we're feeding the wildlife. And then the second thing, I, I think you inferred it too, is uh, what I did with this critic is, you know, the email comes in, I'm anxious. Mm -hmm. I actually allow myself to be anxious for about 30 minutes to an hour. I used to try to nip it in the bud and then mm. I would get down on myself for not being out, you know, because like I'm the anxiety guy, right? Like I'm the anxiety coach. So I'd actually go into this really sophisticated level of shame, like, oh, you, you can't even do this. <laughs> so more recently, I've, I've realized, no, let yourself be human for about, up to an hour. Mm. And then at some point in that hour, I'm actually intentionally observing my thinking. And what I do to help stay connected is I, I get clear on my values. So when, when you are saying to these people, listen, here's who I am, here's where we're going, you don't need to agree. I don't need you to agree, but mm -hmm. this is where we're going. That really forces them to back down or to come at you harder, but it definitely breaks a pattern. And one of the jobs of systems theory, when, when you're a systems theory consultant, is you're looking for stuck patterns between mm -hmm. people. And man, the, the pasta as the punching bag is definitely like an archetypal pattern. So I'm, I'm always keen to help pastas get a break from that. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about, I'm not sure if it was, if it was uh, in talking in your material or other material. I took a week off last week, um, which is my first week off in like over six months. So that was, that was a problem. Uh, yeah. But it's kind of been life because of homeschooling and such. Uh, but I was thinking about often in sabbatical situations, it almost felt like a sabbatical to me, is folks come back from the sabbatical and things just get, like things blow up in almost in a way because so I was really trying to be cognizant of the patterns I was coming back into and be aware of how can I kind of not repeat those patterns. Yeah. I, I, I really think if a leader can step out of kind of the treadmill of it and mm. really get clear on the patterns, almost like you're looking at a chessboard. I, I, I'm no good at chess, but you know, I understand that most excellent chess players are always several moves ahead. Mm -hmm. It's not really about being, you know, several moves ahead of your critics or, or the people. It's just about seeing, well, what patterns am I in with these people? Particularly when you are early in a church, you get into patterns, then you end up like saying, man, why did I do this? And then you feel stuck. Well, like, it's almost like, well, I can't change the pattern now, but mm -hmm. I, I really coach people, just go ahead and fall on your own sword with those people. Just say to them, listen, I think we're in this pattern. I don't think it's good. Here's what I'm doing that makes it worse. So I'm going to mm -hmm. change what I'm doing. And so you're going to feel a change. Like in my life, I am a chronic overfunctioner. Mm -hmm. If you underfunction, I will make up all the difference because I believe in you, because I like to be running things. And that just leads to so much trouble. What ends up happening is when I suddenly realize oh, I'm overfunctioning again and I pull back, if I don't talk to the people, they'll feel neglected because they're very used to me over-functioning. So mm. what I've had to learn is to say, hey, I have this problem where like, where you drop a ball, I pick it up and carry it, I let you get away with it, and I don't know how to talk to you about it, so I'm talking to you about it now, because now when you drop a ball, I'm going to say to everyone, hey, look, you dropped that ball. 
Mm. Whereas before I was covering for you. So if you feel, yeah. a, if you feel a shift, that's why, because there is a shift and I'm really sorry, really sorry that for my part in this, um, you know, kind of the general rule of anxiety management is you try to figure out where's it coming from. And as a leader, how do I put the anxiety back where it belongs? So if you're sending a heated email to me, that's inappropriate, you're treating me poorly. I'm not looking to pay you back. I'm just looking for you to carry the weight of the anxiety you're generating. So that's what I did with this, this guy that emailed me. I, I took an hour and I just sent back a very clear email. This, uh, you know, we've talked about this. This is unacceptable behavior at this church. We don't treat each other this way. I don't tolerate it. So love you, love your family. Glad you're at this church. But just a reminder, here's who we are. Here's how we operate. Well, now he is forced to really decide, is he going to double down on me and come after me harder? Mm-hmm. Or does he now have to, to show up different? And that's, that, that would be a, a general simple case. Yeah, I was thinking about that this morning, trying to figure out. Uh, we were talking before we started recording about school mornings and getting the kids ready. <laughs> How do I transfer the anxiety to yep. my daughter? To your daughter, Because yeah. I'm owning all the anxiety right now. Yeah, so we can, if you want, Lauren, like I'm always sensitive on a public show, like how much you want to do, but we can run this as a case if you want to try some things right I now. I mean, we're we're way off uh, script, so if you're fine, I'm fine. Let's well, just go with it. Here's the question, is what happens, because my understanding is she's not that excited about getting up in the morning for right. school, so, so you then, what you're doing in a pattern is you're trying to figure out what are the dynamics. So she sleeps in. You then overfunction and you mm-hmm. feel a need to get her going. What happens if you stop doing that? What's she's going to skip school? Well, she's late, and then my day is late, and I feel kind of stressed about being behind, quote unquote, in my day. What happens if you don't take her? Like to school at all? Yep. Oh, she's kind of stuck at home, you know, not learning or bothering me. Yeah. So I think I think that's what you start exploring is, well, what does it look like if I don't get her up? Mm. Um, and then she skips school and she has to call in and let them know why. Now, I don't, this may not be a good idea. A lot of what you're doing <laughs> is you're playing with possibilities because right, right. anxiety makes you stuck. Yeah. Um, you also might come to the conclusion that, well, an eight-year-old, it's actually, you know, from a human development point of view, it's pretty appropriate that I have to drag her to school, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. You know, one option might be that you talk to her and say, here's the dynamic you and I are in together and I get frustrated and I don't like being frustrated at you and I bet you don't like me being frustrated. So yeah. can, can we together agree on a different way? Um, there's lots of options, but really the, the simple thing is anxiety kind of tells you there's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you start exploring all the possibilities you discover, Okay, how can she carry more of the anxiety? How can I carry less? What is actually the implication of me just stopping carrying it all together? Because probably a couple of days of her sleeping in and her having to call the school, I would imagine would change some of her behavior. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you might you might say, well, eight, no. Right. But talking to her about it, she's old enough where you guys can talk in a non-anxious way about, about what it's like. But this... I'm glad we. I'm kind of glad we kind of workshopped this in a little way because it's a great example of, on a broader, on a broader or a simple way, but this broader concept of like, because uh, I think this is what so often happens in churches is, the pastor kind of gets, um, pastor kind of gets wrapped up. I know I have at least, and this anxiety of like, 
man, the the money's running dry, the tenants is rough, like, and that you know most of the time the congregation is already stuck, and then the pastor comes in with these fresh ideas, they become stuck, and then it's just kind of this ball of anxiety of, and the ability to kind of break out of that stuckness. That's why I appreciated um, in Friedman's What Failure of Nerve, right? He kind of he kind of uses the the image what of the the explorers going what west instead of east as just kind of this mind shift that was able to open things up just mind-blowing i mean it's the opening chapter of failure of nerve and he makes the case that the reason the new world was discovered chris columbus and that whole crew was because they managed anxiety it's such a stunning after a thousand years of anxiousness these mm-hmm. guys get on a boat it's incredible Yeah. Well, I want to shift gears here a little bit because I want to talk, uh, it's related, but I want to talk about your, your uh, CPE or your clinical pastoral education <laughs> yes. uh, experience. And uh, you have a little bit more experience than I do, but uh, I've been in the program too. And uh, you use this image of the emergency room uh, in your teaching from your own experience and then more broadly speaking. And I was thinking about, um, talk about, kind of talk about the metaphor of the ER and then I have a follow-up question there, but talk talk a little bit about that context. Yeah, you know, um, in the emergency room, when you're a chaplain, you know, a patient comes through the double doors on a gurney, their head strapped to the gurney, there's an EMT, oftentimes straddling them, doing chest compressions. It's very, it's extremely intense. And And within a minute or two of that scene happening, now a family shows up. They've gotten mm-hmm. a call, they've rushed to the hospital. So the chaplain's job is is both of those. It's the patient and the family. We kind of have a two congregants in this situation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, your job is to help this family navigate this crisis. And and what I quickly learned, and in fact, what my what one of the chaplains taught me, he said, what you're looking for is the dynamic that was in the family before they got the call. Because whatever mm-hmm. dynamic that is, is going to be yeah. exposed by the call. So if the family is generally healthy, then they're going to navigate this terrible time well. But boy, if they're toxic, if there's abuse, if there's secret keeping favorites, you know, as a chaplain, you're really in for it. You're, you're walking mm-hmm. on eggshells. That was incredible advice. So, you know, all of last year, because of my work, my phone just didn't stop ringing mm. of pastors, particularly faith leaders, looking for help because 2020 threw at them things that they'd never had to face before. And that's when it occurred to me, sometime in the summer, I think, I was like, oh, man, 2020 is the emergency room. It didn't create the problem. It exposed the condition. That's actually why I launched this online community is to try to provide resources for faith leaders because if if we don't do something different, nothing's going to be different this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I have used often the image of or the theological word of an apocalypse you know, we think of apocalypse as like this disaster and time scenario, but really it's the most basic meaning is it's an unveiling. And, you know, we could say this, the the pandemic has been an, an unveiling of so much of injustice and anxiety. And, um, and I, going back to, again, to that ER scenario, I was, that was a really helpful for scenario for me to think about in a context I was dealing with recently as I dealt with a ton of blowback from a situation I was thinking about, you know what, this is, this is really just exposing what's already going on there. And you yeah. did, it kind of was a helpful for me to kind of be like, take a deep breath myself and be like, Hey, this isn't, this isn't from me. Like I, 
you know, th- I'm not harming anybody. It just it's the situation is revealing what's really going on below the surface there. And, and for me, I was trying to be like trying to think about it in a, you know, in a uh, chaplain way of like, how can I stay connected? But, you know, have some boundaries, I guess. Um, but I, I really appreciate your, your point about this because uh, this is what I think about for leaders that leaders have experienced, especially church leaders, so much trauma uh, over the last year. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, how do you see that? And, and what are your, what practical steps or ideas might you have for leaders from a family systems perspective? Yeah, I think this last year has been one of the hottest years for most faith leaders, just as a blanket statement. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think what's unique about, like, every every leadership and every vocation has its own challenges. Like, I don't mm-hmm. envy any school teacher, for example. No. So I, no. I don't ever want to give the impression that I think that pastors have it worse than others. I, I just I just focus on pastors because I am one and I'm familiar with it. But one of our unique challenges is we generally take our work so profoundly personally mm-hmm. that yeah. any criticism is a criticism of our identity. And that's not healthy, but, but I think it is the way we are. And then our congregants, there's a couple of dynamics. Because people attend a church for a while, they think they know how to lead a church. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I see that in school teachers too. Like, because I send my kid to school, I think I can tell you how to teach my kid. You know, yep. that, that happens too. But it, it happens in churches. And then the other dynamic in churches is because God's involved, everything's times a million. Yeah. So, so you know, the amount of times somebody, like I've actually had someone say to me, you know, the Holy Spirit left our church in January or whatever. I'm like, how do you know? Oh, how do you know? Like, and, and what they have decided that they must protect God from our church or our mm-hmm. leaders. So, yeah, 2020 was brutal. I mean, between COVID, politics, and genuine racial disparity, mm-hmm. I think what happened is no matter, for, for the average faith leader, no matter what you say or do, um, I'm really careful how I word it, Lauren, because I used to say, well, 50% of the congregation's upset. That's actually not true. The majority of the congregation are fine, but the percentage of people you hear from, 50% yeah. of them are upset. Yeah. And that feels like everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, we all tend to catastrophize a bit. I think it's more important than ever that that leaders manage the gap between what they're proclaiming about God and what they're experiencing from God. Mm-hmm. And if that gap is too broad, then dig deeper into your life-giving habits, practices. I think this is the year we all get into therapy and or spiritual direction. I'm currently actively now seeking out a spiritual direction community for myself. Mm. Um, I've done therapy before and spiritual direction before, and I just think we all need a coach to help yeah. us connect to God. Because I think we all get into ministry because we want to help people experience God mm-hmm. or transformation. And then I think the weight of ministry often stops us from experiencing it. So those of you, I'd be happy to jump into any of those, but that's my initial initial thought. Yeah, I, was, I recently had um, Todd Bolsinger on, who I know you've had on a couple times. Yeah, and that was what a guy. He made about um, having someone, a spiritual director, someone, uh, you know, just for that same reason. And I know... Man, what a what a gift for me it's been having that relationship. Um, I'll say, you know, I think the thing that sh- that I struggle with the most, you know, 
is going back to like conflict or with folks is I think about how like I got into ministry because I want to help people. I want to see them grow closer to God and faithful, and, you know, following with Jesus. And then conflict happens. They, they leave the church for whatever reason. And it, it pains me so much because I think about while it's not like, again, it's not really my responsibility. I kind of, I've kind of take on that responsibility thinking like I'm ultimately the cause of why this person is further away from God or church yeah. or whatever. And I just, I know it's not right, but <laughs> I hate that feeling. Yeah, it's an awful feeling. Yeah. Well, talk about um, talk about some of the resources you have in MLA or Cable Life to kind of help pastors deal with these challenges and yeah. leaders. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, I, honestly, it, I'm always reticent to plug, but I think my best resource, and it's also the most affordable, is CapableLife.me. It's just the website. It's www.CapableLife.me because Everything we're talking about uh, is offered in 10-minute videos. So you can do it just for a few minutes a week. There's also a confidential online discussion to where right now I think we have around 150 members. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can find peers on there. And then we do monthly Zooms with a coach. So you get a chance to ask questions and discuss. I, I don't know how to experience family systems and this kind of stuff without uh, participating in it. So mm. my book is fine. My books are, I, I'm really happy yeah. with my book, but reading about it is not going to change anything. You have to try it. And so some, whether it's my community, there's other communities as well, but some kind of embodied community where you can try things on, I think is essential. That's um, a great yeah, point. I've got a book and I've got a podcast people can listen to, but if you're going to read or listen, you, I can guarantee you money back guarantee, read my book, and that's all you do, nothing will change. That's a great point, Steve, because I remember at my first church, whenever I'd get super anxious, I'd pull off Stanky or however you say his name off the shelf, and I'd read chapters in his book, and, and nothing would change. Yeah, It would resolve my anxiety for a moment Yeah, because I didn't really put his put the theories into practice. Nothing really changed. Yeah, um, I don't know who first said it. I always attribute it to Kurt Thompson, but I don't know if it's original with him, but Kurt Thompson says we name things to tame things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what I lead people to do is um, naming dynamics out loud. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, people can also bring me into your organization. If you want some custom stuff, I do a lot of work with not just churches, but really any staffs of any organizations. Um, a lot of people are doing that. My calendar's pretty full right now, but in the fall, um, yeah, you'd be welcome to bring me in to help out personally. Great. But yeah, honestly, Capable Life's probably the best best shot. Yeah, and full disclosure, I'm a member of Capable Life. Uh, you'll have to forgive me, Steve. I don't get on the discussion boards much because I'm doing a doing MBA right now, and like more discussion boards just seem like torture. <laughs> right. Um. Uh, but it, I would recommend it. Uh, I want to ask this before we we move on. Um. I'm kind of wrestling with this right now, and I'm sure you are, and 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 many pastors are. Even even when this airs, we'll still be wrestling it because of the uncertainty of the anxiety and or the uncertainty of the the COVID and the vaccine and whatever. What do you what advice do you have for pastors and leaders as we get back to quote unquote normal? Yeah, I don't believe we will ever get back to what it was. So I think that the sooner leaders can die to that the healthier you'll be. And then it's a matter of managing your congregation's expectation. I cannot see in the next five to 10 years 
where we're all going to say, oh, it's back to normal. I think we're now in a very new reality where all of our churches are shaken up. People, yeah. A lot of people have left. A lot of people have joined. I know in our congregation, the majority of our congregation is now online mm-hmm. and, and now dispersed all over the country, and we're trying to figure out what that means. So we're giving ourselves like a two-year window to really learn so I would advise churches, you know, church leaders to intentionally make some mistakes, get in the habit of getting it wrong. Uh, intentionally tell your congregation that we're going to try some things and we might be wrong. And so if you say, oh, that was wrong, we might be the first to agree with you, but this is the only way we're going to know how to move forward. That's what we've been doing at our church is we're very upfront with our congregation of the experimental phase we're in. We're doing our best with our best information, but that may not be what's right to do. Um, I, I think being vulnerable with your congregation is wise. And then I think the second thing is really paying attention to who's generating the anxiety. How do I let them carry the impact of their anxiety so I'm not carrying it? Yeah. I'll, I'll say, like, I I had to do some work recently just kind of, like, grieving the loss of what I wanted. Yeah. For, I'm pastor of a fairly new church and like the church has been uh, to this point, it's almost like it's been around during COVID almost as long as it was pre COVID. And I kind of had to finally accept like what it's going to look like after COVID isn't going to be probably anything close to what I'd hoped it would be. Right. And I mean, I'm probably still processing that, but you know, that idea of like, this quote unquote normal being gone forever. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a big, it's a big deal. And that's, I mean, that's, that's anxiety of itself. I know it was for me and I'm sure it is for other leaders of feeling like we need to get back to that normal. I am sure, you know, for established congregations that have been even around longer than you, your congregation, like there's this, you know, for folks who've been members of a church for 30, 40, 50 I mean, some mainline traditions, <laughs> like their whole life, there's this expectation of, well, let's get back to normal. And there's going to be a lot of anxiety there for uh, leaders to have to work through. Yeah, and the leader has to be really careful that you don't become the scapegoat of people's anxiety. Yeah. As if, as if you're the cause. It, it actually happened at our church. When I first came to our church, it was six years old. So it was a new church plant. Mm-hmm. And uh, the previous pastor was very beloved, great guy, and he left I think he left well, mm-hmm. but o- over the course of a year or two, there was just a small group of people that started to blame me, and they would, they would talk about me as if I ran Tim off, like mm. as if I was the reason he left. And um, I, I remember sitting down with them one day and saying, "You realize, like he left, and then time passed, and then I came, right? Like it was a total disconnect of cause and effect. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that." I wanted to come and so he had to leave is that he left so you had to find someone but the way they had kind of scapegoated me onto their anxiety with all the change so i think it's it's another way you can differentiate is really pay attention to when you're carrying blame for something that's not yours to carry and Mm. subsequently that is what gives me the freedom to take the blame when i make a mistake i'm very quick to say you know what that was my fault i did it wrong um, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it, it gives me the freedom to be human-sized as a leader. I, I think that's the challenge for 2021 is to just expect out of yourself exactly what God expects, which is to be a human-sized leader. Yeah. 
Well, this is so good stuff. We could spend another 45 minutes on it, but let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Steve Cuss. And uh, Steve, I always tell folks you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. Excellent. Uh, full disclosure, I kind of got this idea from your podcast. <laughs> uh, so if you're Pope for a day, what does that day look like? What do you want to do? You know, you know, I am a big fan of Pope Francis. And I think I would take, a, if I was Pope for a day, I'd take a page out of his playbook. I love that he... Uh, washes feet. I love that sometimes in confession, he jumps into the confessor's seat and confesses mm. to, I thought that was amazing. And I love that he cold calls monasteries to check up on nuns and monks. I think I would do all of that. I think that sounds amazing. Good. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you would want to meet or bring back to life? A G.K. Chesterton. I and and Rich Mullins, uh, I guess if I could have dinner with both of them at once, I, I, G.K. Chesterton remains for me has my all-time favorite quote. If we have time, I'll read it for us. It's about thirty seconds long. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, let me just bring it up here. I gotta find it here. Uh, While you're doing that, let me riff on Rich McCullen or Rich Mullins. Yeah, I was thinking about this. And I don't. I think you'd probably know her. Uh, um, Rachel Held Evans' work. Yeah, yeah. I sense woman. as someone who grew up, you know, I was kind of. A, Rich Mullins was a little died kind of when I was not super old. I think early teens. I sense like the way Rich Mullins kind of beloved this kind of figure. I feel like the same, uh, Rachel Held Evans is going to kind of have a similar memory of her of kind of being this seminal figure that was taken far, far too soon. I think she was so freeing for so many people. They experienced so much freedom because of her ministry that they just profoundly yeah. mourned. And, and, you know, also just the tragedy of a young mom dying young. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, okay, here's Chesterton because children have abounding vitality because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt monotony. It's possible that every morning God says, do it again, and the sun rises. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes each daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. I love that quote. Wow. Yeah. What do you think history will remember from our current time and place? I think history will look back on 2020 and the racial disparity and and judge us those of us of privilege and predominantly white mm -hmm. will judge us yeah. of willful blindness like willful blind like we yeah. chose to not look and not take it seriously yeah so good what are your hopes then what do you hope for the future of christianity I, you know i i really i have tremendous hope for the future of christianity i i really do 
I'm kind of old school Bible guy. So, you know, when Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail, I see that on earth. Mm -hmm. Like I believe that hope and light and life overcome darkness and despair. So, um, as a, as a Christian who grew up in a minority culture where, where there were so few of us in Australia, I've always been mm -hmm. more comfortable when we're the minority and the outcast. I have a high mistrust of Constantinople. Mm -hmm. I have a, I have a high <laughs> yeah, mistrust yeah. of uh, Make America Great Again, the idea that maybe it was great for white people, but I don't know many Native Americans or African Americans who look back on the good old days. So nope. I have tremendous hope for a marginalized force of love that can really transform people's lives. And then when it becomes majority culture, I get pretty nervous. Yeah, boy, so good. Um, I know we've already talked about this, but repeat again, where can people find out more about uh, your work and capable? Yeah, so my, my main website, which doesn't do much, is stevecuswords.com. But then my more active website is capablelife.me, M-E. And you can check that out and jump in on some stuff there. Awesome. Well, great conversation. Really appreciate your thoughts. And uh, thanks for your time. May God's peace be with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us. Thanks again and go in peace.